Hello, neighbor. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, on the web at cortezradio.ca. I am Amanda O'Fox Gillespie, and I welcome you to Folk University's Friday Folk You Talk Show on CKTZ 89.5 FM. We are in the middle of a special month, not just because of its, its May, but because we are doing a partnership with Foci, Friends of Cortez Island, called Nature is Good for You. Maybe you're wondering, what is Folk University? I mean, one thing it is, is a lot of fun to say. Go ahead. Try it out. Say it yourself. Folk University. Folk you is what we also call it. We are an experiment in slow learning. We are the only university where nobody graduates. We're asking the question, can we use our ideas, our interests, our skills, our passions to help realize our individual potentials and make us more resilient as individuals and as a community? Hey, let's just see if we can have more fun. So today, I am really, really lucky and happy and excited to have in the studio with me, Autumn Willow, who is here to talk a little bit more about the foci species at risk on Cortez, um, but not just Cortez, uh, Quadra surrounding islands, so we're not leaving you out there, and what we can do to support them. So Cortez and the surrounding area has a wealth of wildlife, including a large number of species at risk, from the great blue heron to the western toad. Autumn's going to let us know more about these species and help us and how we can each support them. Hi, Autumn. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. I just want to thank folks for tuning in. And for to you, Amanda, the creatrix behind Folk You. It's amazing to have this space hosted on the airwaves. This is a rad partnership in action between Folk You and Folk I, and I'm just stoked to be here. I hope that this radio show finds you smiling and enjoying the fresh air, nature, and the bird song wherever you may be. As Manda said, my name is Autumn, and I'm sitting here on Takaimok, Tla'amen, and Hamalco territory in the Salish Sea. I just want to acknowledge the people that have cared for and lived in harmony with these lands and waters here for millennia. All that is here is because of those who came before. And I'd also like to acknowledge that many of the species that I'm going to be speaking about today have lived here for millennia as well, with the people in harmony. So this is possible. We just have to remember what we've forgotten. I myself am a total plant lover and animal lover. Much of my life is revolved around plants and animals. They're my friends and they teach me so much every day. This past year in particular, I've been truly devoting my time and energy to learning even more about animals and plants, those I live with and those I live around especially. These relationships help me truly feel into the interconnectedness between all of us here and how important it is to care for one another. Interconnectedness, interconnectedness is especially real for us on this little rock that we all live on. We're all in this together, and if someone is affected by a change in their environment, it's likely that we all are on some level. So my passion led me to work with Helen Hall at Friends of Cortez Island Society. 
Cortez's local nonprofit conservation organization, which has been such a blessing and an honor to work with her. Seriously, I love you, Helen and Sabina and all the FOCI board members. You all rock. About two years ago, FOCI partnered with local ecologist Sabina, Sabina Leader Menzies and identified around 33 animal species at risk that live here or migrate through here on so-called Cortez Island. And this is when this species at risk citizen scientist project was birthed. There are many species that we're researching and monitoring on the island. We've been creating profiles of these animal species and they can be seen on the FOCI website, which is friendsofcortez.org in which you can read up on these species that I'm going to be speaking about today with many more profiles to be added over time. The most crucial aspect about this project is that any and all of us can be involved in monitoring species on the island. With all eyes and ears on deck, we can gain a true understanding of who shares the island with us and how we can coexist in a good way. And citizen science is another level in coexistence. Citizen silent science is merely the act of taking part in monitoring and recording and reporting your sightings. So if you hear or see an animal, especially a species at risk, please call us at FOCI or send us an email. The number for FOCI is 935-0087 or friendsofcortez at gmail.com. Just tell us what you saw, when and where you saw it, and we will collect that data. FOCI has been collecting data and recording all sightings that are sent into FOCI. Again, FOCI meaning Friends of Cortez Island Society. And all of this information is sent into the Conservation Data Center in Victoria. And this help information helps to bring to life a map of the distribution of these species which helps researchers better understand these species and their conservation needs. And this data also informs the decision-making around the importance in protecting these species and their ecological communities. Not only are species at risk, but ecological communities are at risk as well. Coastal sand ecosystems is one in particular that we have here. Wherever you see the dune wild rye or the beach pea, Hank's Beach, for example, is an ecological community that's at risk. So you see, the more that we learn about these species and their habitats and their role in the web of life, the more likely we are to protect them and coexist with them in a good way. My curiosity to learn more about our local species has grown and has been supported through this Species at Risk program. And it's led me to dive into the quest of understanding our species at risk here. And so that leads me here today. So today, throughout this talk, I hope to answer these questions for you, because these are questions that I had myself. What is a species at risk? What species at risk live here on the island? And what can we do to support these species? I'm really stoked to be a voice for the species at risk here. Some of these species you may know really well, and some you may be introduced to today. I hope I can get you acquainted with some of our amazing animal neighbors. So first off, what is a species at risk? What does that mean? 
A species at risk is any naturally occurring animal or plant species that's in danger of disappearing in the wild. So in 2002, the government of Canada created the Species at Risk Act, also known as SARA, S-A-R-A, and which is federal legislation that protects wildlife from becoming extirpated, meaning disappearing from the province or the country. And it also provides recovery strategies for each species and their habitats. There is a committee on the status of endangered wildlife in Canada, also known as COSIWIC. And this is the authority behind the legislation. The committee is a group of the best available Indigenous knowledge, scientific research, and community knowledge to help evaluate the status of each of these species. So there are four different levels of classifications under the Species at Risk Act. A species of special concern, threatened, endangered, and extirpated, which again means they no longer occur in the wild in in a province or in the country as a whole. Extinct means they are completely eradicated from the earth in the wild. So each province also has each of its own classifications. BC in particular uses a color coding system ranging from yellow to blue to red. Yellow meaning the species is apparently secure. Blue meaning they are a species of special concern and red meaning threatened or endangered or extirpated. But this is simply just a classification because there's very little enforcement to protect species at risk on a provincial level in BC. And BC has the highest biodiversity of anywhere else in the country. BC has yet to introduce its own legislation to protect species at risk here, which is really shocking. But apparently it's in progress, but it has been for many years and there's nothing yet. So the more that we show that we residents care, the more likely the push on the government's end. So again, there's no endangered species legislation on a provincial level here in BC. So this is why this project is important. The more that we know about our local ecology and the more data that we send into the Conservation Data Center, the more we can push for provincial legislation to protect these ecological communities and thus these species and all species. An important thing to remember is that the classifications can change every year depending on the data coming in and the fluctuations in populations. So noticing and recording these creatures continually can have a huge impact on our understanding of their distribution. So yes, we do have species at risk here on the island listed under all of these classifications both federally and provincially. And I just want to say, too, that legislation, although an important acknowledgement and action from the government, it's not the only way that we can care for these species. We as neighbors to these creatures can do so much to support their natural way of life. We just have to know them. So what species live here? I'm speaking today particularly about animal species, and we're very fortunate to have over 30 different species at risk visiting or residing on the island. Some of these species may surprise you that they're at risk because we have frequent sightings here, 
But this island is somewhat of an oasis for many of these species because it's relatively less developed here. And although they may be locally abundant, on a larger scale, they are at risk of becoming endangered. So again, on the FOCI website, friendsofcortez.org, we've created profiles for these species, and you can read about them and find out more about their ecology and how to identify them there. I won't have time to share all of them today, but I will speak to as many as I can, starting with the silver-spotted skipper. Say that 10 times fast. So the silver-spotted skipper is a butterfly, and it is listed, it's a blue-listed species in BC, but this is actually not on the Species at Risk Act. It's found in the extreme southern Canada, most of the U.S., and into northern Mexico. But in our little neck of the woods, it was presumed to be extirpated from, for over 100 years. The last sighting was 103 years ago, until just a few years ago, Christian Grenot took a photo of what looked like a moth and brought it to the BioBlitz to show the moth experts there and asked them to identify it. And they confirmed that it was a silver-spotted skipper. So this is the power of citizen science. It changed its status from being extirpated, and now it's listed as blue, which is a species of special concern. So that's huge. And you can also check out that article on the Cortez Museum website. It's a really cool article, and there's some really amazing photos that Christian and Barry Saxifrage took. So this little butterfly is brown with an orange band on its upper wings. It's about three centimeters long. It has really large black eyes and silver spots on the underside of their hind wings. And you can see butterflies when they're resting, they rest with their wings up. So you can actually see those silver spots when they're resting. They live in and around forests and forest edges, meadows, gardens, swamps, and on and on. They are day flyers and they forage on nectar, particularly loving the plants in the legume family. So that would be like peas and vetches and wisteria and locusts. Those are their favorite plants. And they feed and live and lay their eggs on those plants. But really, they'll just go for any flower that is nectar-giving and blue, purple, pink, red, and sometimes white. But they never visit yellow flowers, or very rarely. It's very interesting. And they also eat insect frass, which is insect poop, and mud. And they assimilate nutrients from all of these sources. Who else is going to clean up the insect poop, hey? <laughs> so yeah, they can be spotted just skipping around meadows and gardens. And in the heat of the day, they, they can't really handle the heat. So they catch shade on the underside of a leaf. So you can see them hanging upside down and again, resting. So their wings are up and you can see that silver spot. They only lay one egg per season, and two generations can happen in a summer. 
And the caterpillars that are born later, they hibernate through the winter. And they do this by creating leaf shelters where they find a leaf on their host plant, usually in the legume family. And they literally cut the leaf and then they fold it over themselves and then they silk sew it together. And they live there and hibernate there throughout the winter. And this is a form of protection from predators. And another thing they do while they're hibernating is if they ever have any excrement to get rid of, they have something called an anal comb where they literally like projectile their fecal matter and chemicals like 38 times their body length away from them so that it's another defense mechanism against predators so they can't smell them and sniff out their their location. Something else interesting about the silver-spotted skipper is that they're considered to be what's known as nectar thieves. Their tongues are so long that they go deep down into the flowers, getting the nectar and touching only the male part of the flower. So no pollination occurs, which is really interesting. So why is the silver spotted skipper at risk? They have invasive predators, such as wasps, that will prey upon or predate upon rather the, the larvae or the caterpillar. Also, a general decrease in their food plant host plant species, such as the legume family. The beech pea in particular is one of those species that are a plant species at risk. So that's indicative of why they might be at risk as well. Also, the warmer summers are really hard on these delicate little butterflies. So the warmer the days, the shorter the window of being able to go and forage. And and then urban development and habitat fragmentation, wildfires, parasites, etc. All sort of self-explanatory. But really all of these are speculative at this stage because we're still learning about the silver-spotted skipper. So what can we do to support the silver-spotted skipper? Plant flowers and keep those flowers that you might usually pull out if they're particularly blue, purple, pink, or white, or red. They love clovers, milk thistles, the vetches, all in any of those kinds of things, and more. And then, of course, just keep your eyes out. I, uh, I've yet to see one, and I'm really hoping to see one this year. It's really exciting. And you're going to hear me say this a lot, but report your sightings to us at Foci, because, again, the more data that we have, the more chance we have at protecting these species. Yeah. I have a question. What does the, um, you didn't call it a chrysalis, but they take a leaf and then they silk sew it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that look like? It literally looks like, again, I haven't seen it in real time, but from the pictures that I saw and from what I'm understanding is it literally looks like a leaf folded over like pretty much like a leaf curled in together. So it's pretty inconspicuous. You might not, if you didn't know about the silver spotted skipper caterpillars, you might just look right past it. When you are gardening, Mm -hmm. do you then leave your kind of like flower leaves and things like that? I mean, it never actually occurred to me that 
you know, by being super good gardener, which I'm not, so <laughs> um, that I could be removing things that would be actually important habitat um, in the off season. Yeah, well, they they live on live plants. So any um, pieces and morsels of plant that have been taken out of the ground, they don't they don't serve the silver spotted skipper. But if you have especially those perennial plants, that's where they that's what they like to live on is those perennial plants that have a leaf that they can just curl over and then lay babies on it again the next year. Wow. Yeah. Should we have a little musical uh, yes. inspiration? For yes. That one? From Dolly Parton. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. So um, here we go. Love is like a butterfly as soft and gentle as a sigh. The multicolored moods of love are like its satin wings Love makes your heart feel strange inside It flutters like soft wings in flight Love is like a butterfly, a rare and gentle thing I feel it when you're with me It happens when you kiss me That rare and gentle feeling that I feel inside is soft and gentle Your kiss is warm and tender Whenever I am with you I think of butterflies Love seems like a butterfly The multicolored moods of love Like its satin wings Love makes your heart feel strange inside It flutters like soft wings in flight a butterfly, a rare and gentle thing Your laughter brings me sunshine Every day is springtime And I am only happy When you are by my side How precious is this love we share How very precious, sweet and rare Together we belong like daffodils and butterflies butterfly as soft and gentle as a sigh the multicolored moods of love like its satin wings love makes your heart feel strange inside it flutters like soft wings in flight love is like a butterfly a rare and gentle thing love is like a butterfly a Hope you enjoyed that little ditty. The next species that I'm going to be speaking about is the coastal cutthroat trout. It's listed as a blue, as blue in BC, and it's not on the Species at Risk Act, but another subspecies of the cutthroat trout is, which has similar habitat and needs. So these fish are about 10 to 18 inches long. And they have bluish-green backs, and they have a distinctive red-orange streak under their jaw. And their jaw extends past their eyes. So those are two of the main distinctive characteristics of the coastal cutthroat trout, differentiating from other fish. They have spots all over, and 
There are two varieties of the coastal cutthroat trout. One of them is sea run, and they have, um, they're more silvery and they have lemony colored bellies. And the freshwater trout are darker with a coppery shimmer. They have lower fins that may be like orangish, yellowish, reddish in color, and they have tiny teeth on the back of their tongue. So this particular, the coastal cutthroat trout, this particular subspecies is found west of the Rockies in lakes, in the ocean, in streams, in lagoons, etc. And they are always found around aquatic vegetation in the water because they really need shelter from the sun and shelter from being predated upon. But also that's where the like kind of breeding grounds for their for their food, which is their insects. They need very clean, clear water and lots of oxygen. So their presence in any lake stream, any area is indicative of a very healthy ecosystem. They eat insects and invertebrates and small fish. Invertebrates are essentially little little creatures without a backbone. They're very tiny and usually always found in the water, these particular ones. And the coastal cutthroat trout is found on almost every stream in Cortez. So that says a lot about the water here and the gravel here and the amount of oxygen available here in the water. So the coastal cutthroat trout is the same genus as the Pacific salmon. So they're also salmonids, but they have a really different life cycle and different spawning cycle. They stay really close to the shore. Even the fish that make it out into the ocean, they stay within 50 kilometers of their original um, spawning site. And they can repeatedly reproduce within the same season which is very different to salmon, of course. Um, So some of them will swim to the ocean, as I said, to spend part of their life there. And then after about a year, they will return back to their original spawning site. When the eggs are laid, they lay them in clean gravel. And they hatch within about seven weeks as little fry. And again, they need really specific water quality and stream flow as well for early development because if it's too slow then they have an increase in competition for the habitat site and if it's too fast then they could get washed away to the ocean too early so those needs are very particular and then once they hatch as fry they remain in fresh water for two to five years and once they mature to smolts they begin their migration either to another freshwater body or to the ocean. And they can lay 100 to 600 eggs at a time. And amazingly enough, they can live for 15 years. And the sea run fish can live for about 10 years. So they're a really important species because they help balance and connect the freshwater and the coastal food web. 
They're both predator and prey. And they feed and nourish many predators, such as the great blue heron, bears, river otters, osprey, mink, adult salmon, seals, humans, the list goes on. So they're really important. And again, they're indicative of a healthy ecosystem. Why are they at risk? Any change in their habitat, they're very sensitive to. So any pollution, degraded water quality, change in hydrology, the change in the velocity of the flow of the water and erosion and too much sediment, it makes it nearly impossible for them to keep reproducing and and growing up healthy and strong. So what can we do to support them? I'd say when swimming and being around the lakes, just being cognizant of what we're wearing on our body and what we're bringing into the lakes to not only for the cutthroat trout, but for every, every species, including just the water itself. And of course, you know, if you ever see them, just give us a shout at Foci. We really would like to know and really track their population sizes here and how they're doing with the, with the, with the changes in, in the lakes and everything happening. So that is the coastal cutthroat trout. I hope you get to see some soon. Yeah. And next I'm going to be speaking about one of their predators, the Pacific great blue heron, Ardia herodius fenini. I just want to say that Latin name because it's so fun to say. <laughs> they are blue listed in BC the Pacific Great Blue Heron, and they are a species of special concern on the Species at Risk Act. They, I'm sure many of you have seen them and heard them. They're very graceful until you startle them or disturb them, and they have a very interesting call, which we'll play for you right now. Okay, I'm on it. Let's see what happens. Such beautiful creatures. But it's an alarming call, hey? So they're... uh, (laughs) I'm sure many of you have heard that and you didn't even know they were there and all of a sudden, the sound comes out of nowhere. It's so startling. Well, you are in great blue heron territory. They are blue and gray in color. Their plumage is blue and gray. They have long orange legs. They're about, they're over a meter in height and they have a meter and a half wingspan. They have also a black stripe from their eyes stretching down to the back of their head. And the Pacific great blue heron is a little smaller and darker than other subspecies. There's about 64 subspecies of the great blue heron. So today I'm specifically speaking about the Pacific great blue heron. And we have around between, it's estimated, 4,000 and 5,000 adults in Canada. And that's half of the global population of the Pacific Great Blue Heron. So they range from Alaska down into Washington. And there's patches along the BC coast where they're especially prevalent. They live around all sorts of water, be it salt water or fresh water. And they live year-round in the Strait of Georgia. 
they roost really high up in the trees right by the water. And they have very sticky, twiggy kind of nests. So if you're ever looking up in the treetops and you see just kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of sticks and twigs, that is likely a Pacific great blue heron nest. And if you see that, that is something we especially would like to know at Foci because they those trees in particular are federally protected as long as we know they're there, of course. So they eat mostly fish, some amphibians from time to time, and some voles or mice or shrews if they're nearby agriculture, land, or any meadows. They can typically be spotted wading in pools during the low tide or in marshes. I've seen them in both areas here. And their breeding season is from January to April. Uh, they live in rookeries or large colonies, also known as heronries. And that is where they get together and where they breed. And each mating pair is actually monogamous. So they team up. They're real team players. They even share in the incubation it's really precious. And they lay two to six eggs a year. And about half of those are likely to fledge. And then a quarter of all of the fledglings are likely to make it through their first winter. Another really special thing about the male and female is that the male is a form of courtship actually builds a nest for the female and kind of like presents it to her. And then... They just engage in this, if she accepts him, then they engage in this really beautiful courtship. It's like this really cool dance. And uh, you can, I, I would love to see that in person. And I hope you do too sometime. But until then, you can check it out online on YouTube and whatever. And the Pacific Great Blue Heron can live up to 15 years old. And some of them have been even recorded to live up to 25 years old. So why are these species at risk? There's a few reasons. One of the biggest ones is habitat loss, just general development and urbanization, logging the practices, especially of removing the riparian forest, so the forest that's right on the edge of water, the draining and infilling of wetlands. That's really intense on a lot of species and shoreline development because that's their home also low breeding success i'd say that that evolutionary wise there used to be many many pacific great blue heron here and over the years that was kind of nature's way of maintaining a carrying capacity having only a quarter of the fledglings to survive the first winter but now with the population being so low that is one of the factors in them being at risk and they're very sensitive to disturbance so they will actually abandon their nests because of that disturbance and in the 70s 80s and 90s 21 colonies on the coast here abandoned their nesting sites and then there was a severe decline in the populations from then on so 21 colonies is thousands and thousands of birds so that's a really big deal. And also just general disturbance um, increases risk of chick mortality. Also, with the amazing recovery of the bald eagles, 
it's had an increased and impacted effect on the population of the Pacific Great Blue Heron. So predation from bald eagles, especially attacking the eggs, that is real. So the best, how can we support the Pacific Great Blue Heron? I'd say one of the best things that we can do is just to not disturb them. To If you see them around, just to be able to be with them and just keep going, you know. Give them their space and just watch them and just let them be. And, you know, dogs, of course, have many interactions. They can get very excited about seeing the Pacific Great Blue Heron. So having your dog on a leash, especially during those low tides and those times when they're fishing, is really important. Because, again, if they get disturbed, they might actually abandon that site. And depending on the time of year, aka now, it could really increase the risk of chick mortality. And lastly, report. Let us know on, at Foci how many you see, where you see them. There are certain times of the year where Friends of Cortez Island Society has a bird count specifically for the Pacific Great Blue Heron. So chime in on that whenever you can and just let us know whenever you see them because it's really good to know. On Cortez, there was once a really large colony and rookery at Smelt Bay. But again, due to the increase in eagle predation there, um, there's less colonies nesting and it's really hard to assess the local population. So we're really trying to figure that out. And all reported sightings of the Pacific Great Blue Heron, especially nesting ones, are that foci gets, we actually send it out for provincial research. Um. I just want to take a second to say we're listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. Today um, on Folk You Friday, we are super lucky to have Autumn Willow here um, from Foci talking about species at risk, particularly on Cortez, but most of them also relate very strongly to all the surrounding islands and communities. So this is also for you, Quadra. Um, we have wonderful listeners all over. Thank you so much for uh, being here, and I will let you return to this incredible show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to have anybody who's just tuning in now to be uh Listening about next up, the Western Toad. So in BC, the Western Toad is listed as a yellow species, meaning their populations are apparently secure. But on the Species at Risk Act, they are a species of special concern. The Western Toad is the only true toad in BC. And they are stout and stocky. They have a very stocky kind of body. The females can be up to 15 centimeters long, and the males are just a little bit smaller. They're tan to light brown to grayish in color, and they have spots or mottling all over their bodies. They're also very soft, and they have dry, bumpy skin. Sometimes they have reddish warts on them, and they have a cream stripe down the mid center of their back. And they have these large glands behind their eyes called paratoid glands that are just full of kind of like toxic chemicals. So if a predator comes to try to munch on them, that gets released and then likely the predator will spit them out. 
And they don't have a vocal sac, so they actually don't have a sound. They don't create a sound. But if you pick up a Western toad, it's said that they'll make, they'll cheep like a chick or chirp like a chick. So that's really interesting. But it's not always advised to pick up toads just because it, there's a possibility of introducing them to amphibian fungal diseases, which is a huge risk factor for them. And the, the tadpoles are really sm- like are small and black. They're like a centimeter to three centimeters long. And yeah, they're found from Alaska across the Yukon and all the way down into Baja, California. They're found east of the Rockies, right to the Pacific Ocean or left, whatever. <laughs> and when they're breeding, they live around swamps. They live around marshes, lakes, ponds, slow-moving streams, pretty much just any water. Because that's where they breed and where they lay their eggs directly into the water column. And then outside of breeding season, they head to the forests in colonies there. So they are nocturnal usually. So, and they'll eat any insect that they can catch especially those nocturnal flying insects. And they'll occasionally munch on some crayfish or mollusks if that's available to them. But the tadpoles are herbivores and they'll just eat plant matter and algae. That's pretty cool. They, their breeding season is from January to July. And they're found... Yeah, right. So like right now they can be found around the water where they're laying their eggs. And like I said, they lay their eggs into the water column, usually like 15 centimeters in. And they don't lay them in masses like other frogs do. They lay them in a long or not even that long, actually, into a string of black pearls. And that string can have 16,000 eggs, but only 99 or I should say, rather, sorry, let's mix that up. Um, so their string of black pearls is 16,000 eggs, but 99% of them don't mature. But those that do can live up to 10 years. So you can also see them traversing between their breeding site and their um, year-round site. But they use the roads and the ditches as their corridor but they don't hop, actually. They walk, but they can jump a considerable distance, but they usually walk everywhere they go. The females reproduce every one to three years, and metamorphosis from laying egg into an adult toad is about three months. And once breeding a season is over, like I said, they move in a colony to the forest and they usually find like damp areas in the forest because they need their skin always to be moist. It's very permeable skin. And that can be seven kilometers away from their breeding site. And then they stay there throughout the end of the summer and the fall and through the winter, they hibernate in the ground. They're really great diggers, so they can dig just under a meter and a half into the ground and they burrow there and or they find old mammal cavities that they um, just head down into and hibernate there for the year. So really fascinating, the western toad. 
And why are the Western toads at risk? Well, they're sensitive to human activity and to change in climate. Like I said, with very they have very permeable skin. So any pollution in the water or in the air, they literally, their skin completely absorbs it. So that they're very sensitive to that. They're also uh, at risk of amphibian diseases. As all amphibians are, there's a lot of fungal diseases that really affect amphibians. Habitat loss as well with logging and development and wetland drainage. They don't have anywhere to live if, uh, if it's gone, you know. Also vehicle mortality. Because they use the roads and ditches as their corridors between sites, they do get, and they, especially because they're usually moving at night, they, they have a tendency to get hit. Also, in certain ponds, not here, but in certain ponds um, in BC, they're stocked with non-native fish. And then with that comes competition for habitat and also predation. And particularly sensitive, of course, you know, as we all are in some way, to fertilizers and chemicals on fields and forests. They do use pesticides in forests and some do use pesticides and chemicals in their fields and that not only gets rid of their food source but also their bodies can absorb all of that so it's very dangerous on cortez we're trying to determine what significant change happened here in their habitats because to cause their population to nearly disappear here they used to be really abundant especially in the, around the gunflint lake area and there is, I've I've heard of personally maybe two sightings of a single fro- or a single toad each, so they have to be around. But we just have to figure out where and how we can revitalize those ecosystems. So the best thing that you can do to support is get your kids out there, get looking in the ponds and the lakes and the waters, especially around again the aquatic vegetation, because that's where they lay their eggs. And keep your eyes peeled for those strings of black pearls. You never know what you might find. And then just being also conscientious again of what we're putting into our ponds and our lakes and our fields. And again, how we can coexist in a good way. Another really cool fact about the Western toad is that the males have biter's organs or a biter's organ. And that organ actually becomes an active ovary when the conditions are right. So they essentially switch sexes from male to female and then can become sexually mature after two or six years, two to six years. So it's pretty fascinating about the Western toad. Do we know when the population started declining here? That I'm not 100% sure of, but within the past few decades, I'd say, but I personally can't say for sure. I'm not the one to ask that. (laughs) Thank you for that question. I will definitely be looking into that. The next animal that I'd like to speak about is the barn swallow. Yay, barn swallows. We have a call here just in case because they are starting to return. So I'm going to share this with you.
very similar to other swallows. This call. So beautiful, right? Ah, I just love that sound. So the barn swallow is blue listed in BC and it is on the Species at Risk Act labeled as considered threatened. So that's pretty severe. The barn swallow is about 15 to 18 centimeters in length from the wingtip to wingtip. And their long wings taper to a point. They have a small head and a short beak. They have really dark blue wings and back and tail and a creamy underbelly. They have a very rusty red throat and forehead. And they have a white tuft of feathers at the base of their wings. And they have very deeply forked tail feathers. I think this helps them with their aerodynamics. And the females and males are very similar, but the females are less bright and they have shorter tails. So these are visitors, but also this is their home for many years, but they're long distant migrants. They travel from Central and South America up to North America and they land in Alaska area in about mid-May. So they travel from the South all the way up to the north. And then they head back down south somewhere around August. They start making their way back south. They live around water bodies, around meadows, farmland. And traditionally, they built their nests in, or they had their nests in caves and cliff sides. But for many, many decades now, they've just been building nests on human made structures such as barns, hence the name. And there is estimated like 4.9 million individuals in Canada. And that may seem like a lot, but in the past 40 years, there's been a 76% decline in the population. So their diet is flying insects. They'll just... Anything they can catch, and that's why they're kind of seen like sporadically flying, just diving and twisting and turning, and it's amazing watching them fly, and they're just catching insects and foraging all day. They will return to previously built cup mud nests, and they nest in small colonies. So again, yeah, their their nests are found typically... Um, now more common than not on human-made structures. So be that underneath eaves troughs or kind of up in the roofs under rafters. Or you can also, I'm sure many of you already have, just built a little horizontal um, shelf where they can then carry the mud and the grass to build their own nests on that shelf, make it a little easier for them and encourage them to come stay at your place especially if you live around meadows or wetlands and farmlands. So, yes, they will year after year return to those same nests, 
and they lay three to five eggs and they can lay two broods in a season. They can often be seen perched on wires or on fences near their foraging grounds, just kind of taking a rest in between meals. Usually that can last like a few minutes or seconds. And or they can also be seen collecting mud for their nests. Barn swallows can live to be 10 years old, but they usually live to be about four. Some cool facts about the barn swallows are they are the most widely distributed swallow species in the whole world. So that's pretty fascinating. They unmated males may actually kill the young of a mating pair and successfully gain the opportunity to mate with that with that female. And they also the swallows barn swallows also help each other out when they're nesting. So if they have like, you know, older siblings or just anybody kind of in their colony, they will help each other out in incubation and taking care of their eggs and their brood. So why is the barn swallow at risk? Well, there's been a large-scale decline in insect populations, which is their only and main food source. They also can die due to weather events such as cold snaps, habitat loss and degradation, and then demolition of those structures. So if, you know, if there was an old barn, barn swallows had been coming there for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden the barn gets taken down, it destroys their place, and they might not even know it until they return back to it the following year, and then they have to start from scratch. And also egg predation from larger birds. There's also factors, too, you know, in the animals that do migrate from from the south and from other countries that they have different practices and different like legislation and regulation around farming and pesticide use and insecticides and things like that so what it's kind of undetermined and uncertain always what's going on down south in their in their migration migration territory so that's also an effect and an impact for sure so what can we do to support the barn swallow? Like I said, yeah, building a shelf close to the your rooftop underneath um, underneath the little awning. It provides them that platform so they can build their own nest. And then especially if you clean it out year after year, then they can return and, um, and it'd be mite-free and parasite-free. Another cool way to support them is providing them a mud source because then they actually have access to the materials to make their own nests. They won't eat out of bird feeders, like they really love flying insects, but they may take eggshells and oyster shells if placed on the platform. I haven't tried that myself, but that would be really interesting. And then just to keep an eye on a nest that's nearby you, just to make do your best to protect from predators, you can actually put up little kind of like fences or cages around to protect from direct attack from um, egg predation. And yeah, just to just to say it again, cleaning out our nesting boxes, whether it be um, 
their little um, mud cups or if you have other swallow boxes to clean them out every year before they return. It's a really great practice because mites and parasites can exist and thrive in there and or wasps. I've had wasps in my uh, swallow nests so it's good to just get rid of those and have a nice fresh start for the year. Can you give an example of how you might um, do a cage that allows them still to access their um, their nest, but uh, would help keep away, um, I imagine, even cats, domestic cats, yes. um, and mm-hmm. other predators? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been thinking about that, too. And I haven't actually seen that particular practice that anybody um, that I've seen for their nest. So I'm not sure the best way to do that. But I think that if you have um, that that wire that has larger squares so that like say ravens and things can't get into those squares, but the swallows could definitely get out. They're really small and they can sneak through little sizes. That would be really good. And also having like an extended platform so they can build as many nests as they need, but also that extra little bit, they can land on the platform and then go into the nest from the side, whereas predators wouldn't be able to sneak in that little side hole. This is also a great thing that listeners can do. Um, if you have, have created uh, a ledge or um, a, a, you know, kind of a net or protection, send us photos or totally. call and let us know. Um, we will have a chance to call in and ask more questions mm-hmm. and brag about the wonderful things you're doing at your house mm-hmm. um, in about 15 minutes. So, um, And you can always send uh, your pictures and great ideas and questions to you, the letter U, at folk, as in we're all folk, we're on all one folk, people. <laughs> um, you, so you at folkyou.ca. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Thank you. No, for that. that's a great point. I re- I'm thankful for that because, yeah, I'd love to see what practices people are using. What's, you know, this is how we build the community resilience and sharing what works for us, what didn't work for us, and just skill sharing and knowledge sharing. I think that's so key. So I'd love to hear from you if you have any tips and pointers on that. So that was the barn swallow. And next I'm going to speak about the Townsend's Biggard bat. I love these little guys. So they are blue listed in BC. They're not on the Species at Risk Act though. These bats are also known as the lump nose bats. They have really big ears that are like half the size of its body length. And when they're in flight, they're pointed forward because they catch the the sonar frequencies from using echolocation. And that's how they catch their food. They don't have very good eyesight. They're dull brown to grayish in color, and they're a medium-sized bat. They're about 30 centimeters long from wing wing to wing. And their body length is about 10 centimeters. They have a short snout with long nostril slits. And the Townsend's bigger bat ranges from the Rockies to southern BC down into southern Mexico. They live year-round in North America, mostly in and around coniferous forests. They love places that are have warm and dry summers, but not extremely cold winters. And typically they live in caves, large trees, mines, abandoned mines especially, 
cliffs and they may be found in, in buildings in the summer. They are typically found foraging around wetlands. They're nocturnal, of course, so any flying nocturnal insects are their prey as well as many other species that I've mentioned. They have about 80% of their diet is moths and the other 20% just other flying insects around. And they use echolocation to detect insects. So essentially their nose and their mouth emits sonar frequency and it bounces off the things closest to them. And once they have caught that frequency in those large ears and they know where their prey is, they shut off and shut down their sonar so that they become silent to their prey and then they just snatch. And that happens within like seconds, you know. Pretty amazing. They live, like I said, year-round in the Pacific Northwest and they mate and rest in um, in colonies in hibernation sites. So throughout the winter, they need complete darkness with some air movement and consistent temperature and humidity. And then they emerge with the spring and the females form colonies and to rear their young. So the males go off solitary. They roost in trees and cliffs and then the females take them and they're one young they each have one young per year, and they form maternity colonies throughout the the summer seasons. And yeah, so they they these bats don't hide in crevices like other bats do, so they're really susceptible to human activity, such as demolition of a abandoned mine. The they really need a lot of space in their when they're nesting and hibernating. So it's really only 16 hibernation sites have been found in BC. And there's only been 350 Townsend's big-eared bats documented. So over 16 sites, 350 bats. You know, they also will leave, leave their hibernation sites and even their maternal sites if they are disturbed. And depending on... The time of year that can really severely impact the mothers and their young. Excuse me for a minute while I just take a sip. This is a wonderful opportunity for me to say that you are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. This is the Friday Folk You Talk, and we are super lucky to have Autumn here from Folk Eye talking about species at risk in this area. Um, so I will I will let you continue, but Thank I'm you. excited to be able to. <laughs> Perfect. So um, I'm just talking about the Townsend's Biggard bat. And at this stage, I'm just sharing why are the Townsend's Biggard bat at risk? Well, they're really dependent upon healthy insect populations. So if there's any shift in any insect populations, especially the moths, it directly affects them. And land use near their colonies and their hibernation sites and maternity sites also really severely affect them, such as the use of insecticide. Self-explanatory. And as I said earlier, 
disturbance really affects the entire colony and they will abandon their site, which can impact the survivability of the young. And each female, like I said, only lays one young per year. So of the 350 bats, if one of those hibernation sites gets disturbed, that could lose an entire population there. Deforestation and the demolition of mines directly impact their habitat and their foraging grounds. And interestingly enough, white-nose syndrome is, um, is a fungus that has killed millions of bats across North America. Millions. And this fungus thrives in, in their hibernation sites. They then that exact the darkness, the humidity, the temperature, it just reproduces so fast. But there actually haven't been any reports for this particular species. But again, we only know of 350 documented bats. So it's very possible. It's certainly more prevalent than a white nose syndrome in the east. And in the west here, it's starting to kind of trickle over here. So that's definitely a threat. And there actually haven't been any maternity light, maternity sites that have been found on the Gulf Islands. So there have been some hibernation sites found, but no maternity sites. So if you see any evidence of these bats, please let us know. That's the best way we can do to support these bats is to determine where they're living. And especially determine if we were to find maternity sites of mothers and their young rearing on the Gulf Islands... That would be so huge to uh, hopefully implement protection of these species. Some cool facts about bats is they're the only mammals to truly fly. And they can live up to 21 years. And during hibernation, their temperature drops to that of the cave or whatever environment they're in. And also their heart rate drops from 100 beats to, per minute to 5 beats per minute during hibernation. So amazing. Yay, bats. We have lots of, we have quite a few different bat species on the island. Some other ones are also at risk, such as the Keens meiotis. And the biggest distinguishing fact between those bats and these ones are the size and the size of the ears. So keep an eyes, your eyes peeled for those forward-pointing ears. What to speak about next? My gosh, there's so many. It's so hard to choose what to speak about because everyone is kind of returning and emerging for the spring and coming back around. And like I said, there's 33 species at risk here on the island, so I've been having a hard time choosing which ones to speak about. But... um they're absolutely all worthy. So next I will speak about the Sooty Grouse. The Sooty Grouse is yellow listed in BC and it's not on the Species at Risk Act. So it means they, the populations are apparently secure here. But on the island it's been noticed a severe and intense decline in their population. Like a lot less people are hearing them. You're more likely to hear them than see them. But we're seeing and hearing a lot less than we used to. So I'm gonna we're gonna play for you the the male call of the sooty grouse. Mm-hmm. 
Such beautiful birds. <laughs> so we've recently heard one of these just a few days ago up behind in the forest behind our house. That was really exciting. And sometimes you can even also hear them when they're doing their mating dance, they really, really flap their wings. And so if you hear really kind of consistent, repetitive flapping, that's also a way to observe them is by hearing that. So the sooty grouse is like camouflage because it's brown and white speckled. And they're kind of chicken-like. They're about the size of a chicken. They forage on the ground mostly throughout the, the warmer months. The male is like dark brown, gray feathers and has yellow spots on the base of its neck, which he reveals during courtship. And the male also has red and orange feathers like eyebrows. And the female is brown speckled with a darker tail. And Cortez's own late Fred Zwickle is an internationally renowned expert in grouse biology. He co-authored a seminal text on the blue grouse. And in 2006, the blue grouse was split into two subspecies of the dusky grouse and the sooty grouse. And I just learned last night from Ruth that the sooty grouse on the coast has yellow spots, whereas in other areas of BC, they're those spots at the base of their neck can be like orange or reddish. Their habitat is coniferous forests on the coast here, and they love openings. So like forests that have like shrubs and understory as well for protection. They live here year round, but they're most often observed by hearing them in the spring during the mating season when the male's really trying to call in a female. They love old growth forest because it offers a lot of food diversity. They eat plants and insects. And in the summer, they will eat flowers, leaves, berries, bugs. And in the winter, they roost up in the trees and they eat needles like pine needles and spruce needles and fir needles and buds and twigs. They forage from the early morning to the late afternoon and they have a gizzard so that they also will eat and ingest little tiny pebbles, just like chickens and ducks do, to help them grit and grind up their food. So yeah, the mating call is so beautiful, as you just heard, but they also comes with it a beautiful dance and courtship. The male will flap his wings and fan his feathers and reveal his little patches and really just kind of shows off to the female and really tries to lure her in. And should the female take interest, they will mate and then they go their own separate ways. And she builds a nest in a shallow hole in the ground, usually un underneath shrubs or logs for protection. And she'll lay five to ten eggs that are like speckled browns. So they're also kind of camouflaged. And then once they're hatched, they just her and her little chicks roam in open areas and they're foraging and all sorts of insects and berries and 
all of those things. And they're very protective of their eggs and their young. So if you see a sooty grouse nesting, just give her her space for sure. They can live to be 14 years, but their average is about three years. Oh, and I don't know if I mentioned, yeah, their their range is the Pacific West Coast down into California as well. So why is the sooty grouse at risk? This is a great question, and it's still also speculative. The decline here is unknown, but they do face egg predation from from other birds, other small mammals. Sometimes even little chicks can get injured by feral domestic cats. And also just like changes in their areas of foraging. If they were used to, you know, they live for a few years and they rear their young there and then all of a sudden if it gets clear cut or something something shifts due to human activity, then they, then they have to find a new foraging area, which is not as easy, easier said than done. So they have disappeared in developed places, but logging on a smaller scale may actually be briefly beneficial because of all of the slash that's around, it provides good coverage for the sooty grouse to kind of slip under and nest and incubate her eggs and then have always refuge for her young. That's really interesting. And then the best way we can support the sooty grouse is, for one, just save some of the huckleberries for them. They really, again, eat berries. They love berries. So we've got to share share all our berries and or the berries. You know, they're all of our berries with uh, all the wildlife. And doing our best to keep the wild cat populations down because, as I said, they will affect the chicks and potentially the eggs and then raccoons and maybe even some squirrels might go for their eggs as well and please yeah just record and report any sightings whether you hear them you see them whatever it is foci would love to know sure that sure was me saying, <laughs> I'm going to spend a second saying you're listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. And this is the part of the show where we really want to hear from you. So we're going to go to a little break. We're going to listen to a little thematically uh, chosen music. And what we would love during this time is to hear from you. The phone number is 250-935-0200. And you don't have to worry because I don't just immediately put you on air. We just talk to you. Um, You can also email me at you, the letter U, at folk, U, as in folk university, folk, letter U, dot C-A. And ask your questions or share any species at risk that you have seen or ask about a species that you wonder if it's at risk or why it's not at risk. You can also take this time to go to Friends of Cortez Island. Is it friendsofcortez.org? Friendsofcortez.org, yeah. So friendsofcortez.org, and you can see all 33 of the species at risk in this area. Actually, currently we have about 16 profiles created for these species, and we're adding more over time, hopefully to be filling all 33 to have accessible information. 
Um, Here we go. Yes. So, so someone's already calling in. Just hold on one second. I'm going to pick up the phone in one second. I'm going to have to stop talking long enough. Um, <laughs> and so call in. Let us know if you've seen anything um, or if you've created some awesome habitat um, in your area. So here I go where I play some thematically appropriate music. And you're going to call in at 250-935-0200. And I am going to pick up this time (laughs) yay hooray thank you so much for listening and contributing to talk radio fog when a cotton in a heated ride fog when a cotton in a heated ride Fog when a cuddle in a heated ride With a sword and a pistol by his side uh-huh. And he rode right up to Miss Mousy's door uh-huh. He rode right up to Miss Mousy's door uh-huh. He rode right up to Miss Mousy's door Gave three loud raps and a very big roar uh-huh. Said Miss Mousy Said Miss Mouse, are you within? Uh-huh. Said Miss Mouse, are you within? Yes, cancer, I sit in spin. Uh-huh. He took Miss Mousey on his knee. Uh-huh. Took Miss Mousey on his knee. Uh-huh. Took Miss Mousey on his knee. Said Miss Mousey, will you marry me? Without my uncle Rat's consent, uh-huh. without my uncle Rat's consent, uh-huh. without my uncle Rat's consent, I wouldn't marry the president. Uh-huh. Uncle Rat laughed and he shook his fat sides. Uh-huh. Uncle Rat laughed and he shook his fat sides. Uncle Rat laughed and he shook his fat sides I think his knees would be a bride uh-huh. Uncle Rat Rat went downtown uh-huh. Uncle Rat went running downtown uh-huh. Uncle Rat went running downtown To buy his knees a wedding gown uh-huh. Where shall the wedding supper be? Where shall the wedding supper be, uh-huh Where shall the wedding supper be Way down yonder in the hollow tree, uh-huh What should the wedding supper be, uh-huh What should the wedding supper be, uh-huh What should the wedding supper be Fried mosquito with a black eyed pea First to come in was a flying mother. First to come in was a flying mother. First to come in was a flying moth. She laid out the tablecloth. Next to come in was a Judy bug. Next to come in was a Judy bug. 
Next to come in was a junie bug She brought the water jug uh-huh. Next to come in was a bumblebee uh-huh. Next to come in was a bumblebee uh-huh. Next to come in was a bumblebee Said mosquito on his knee Come in was a broken back flea. Uh-huh. Next to come in was a broken black flea. Uh-huh. Next to come in was a broken black flea. Danced a jig with the bumblebee. Uh-huh. Next to come in was Mrs. Cow. Uh-huh. Next to come in was Mrs. Cow. Next to come in was Mrs. Cow. She tried to dance, but she didn't know how. Uh-huh. Next to come in was a little black tig. Uh-huh. Next to come in was a little black tig. Uh-huh. Next to come in was a little black tig. She ate so much, made her sick. Uh-huh. Next to come in was a big black snake. Next to come in was a big black steak. Uh-huh. Next to come in was a big black steak. Ate up all of the wedding cake. Uh-huh. Next to come in was the old gray cat. Uh-huh. Next to come in was the old gray cat. Uh-huh. Next to come in was the old gray cat. Swallowed the mouse and ate up the rat. Frog went a hopping up over the brook. Uh-huh. Mr. Frog went a hopping up over the brook. Frog went a cotton in a heated ride. Frog went a cotton in a heated ride. Frog went a cotton in I had a little frog. His name was Sunny Tim. I put him in the bathtub to see if he could swim. He drank up all the water. He ate up all the soap, and then he burped last night from a bubble in his throat. I had a little frog. His name was Sunny Tim. I put him in the bathtub to see if he could swim. He drank up all the water. He ate up all the soap, and then he burped last night. From a bubble in his throat. Hello, you are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, on the web at cortezradio.ca. I am Amanda O'Fox Gillespie, and you are listening to Folk University's Folk You Talk Show. We are super lucky today to have Autumn in the studio with us from Foci, talking about Foci, which is the Friends of Cortez Islands Species at Risk program. You can see many of these species that we have been speaking about and learn much of uh, much more about them on Friends of Cortez Islands website, which is Friends of Cortez. Org. And we had a, a fantastic call during the break from Ken, who lives in Squirrel Cove, who said he's seen, I believe what he said was three different families of barn swallows that are living there. 
Um, and Autumn said that was the first uh, official sighting that they've had um, this year. So, Ken, and thank you so much for that call. And uh, I'm, I'm going to pass that information also officially on to Autumn so they can follow up with you if they want more information. And thank you, thank you so much for calling in because that is how talk radio works. Uh, there'll be one more chance uh, for you to call in today. At zero two zero zero. The other thing I love hearing about from my listeners are future speakers and um, neighbors you would love to have featured on Cortez Radio. And that doesn't just have to be from Cortez because we have this handy dandy call in option. So you could even call in, say, to the radio station and do a presentation all the way from Quadra. We are getting fancy over here. So uh, we have enough time for at least one more species at risk. Autumn, what is it going to be? It's going to be the northern pygmy owl. For those of you that know me, these owls have a very special place in my heart. So I'm going to play you their call right here. Oh, they're so precious. Mm. So these little owls, the northern pygmy owl, is a blue-listed species in BC. They are not on the Species at Risk Act. There's about 14,500 breeding individuals in Canada. And they live from wet, like along Western North America, down from Alaska, down BC, down the US, into Mexico. And they're year round residents wherever they are, specifically to open old growth coniferous forests. These owls are so special. They're so tiny, they're the size of your fist. They are brown with white speckles all over. They have long tails and short wings and a dark brown tail that has white horizontal bars along them. They don't have any ear tufts, very round head and yellow eyes and bill. And they have dark spots on the back of their neck that resemble eyes. And it's been presumed that that is a way to deter predators because they think that the owl is looking at them, so they don't have a chance to do a sneak attack. They eat small rodents, small birds, occasionally amphibians, reptiles, insects, and they will actually hunt animals up to three times their size. It's been recorded once that one of them caught a chicken. So it's like the size of your fist taking a chicken with them is just amazing to me. They're one of two diurnal owls, meaning they hunt during the day. It's presumed that because they lack those ear tufts, they don't have as good of hearing, so they rely more on their sight. And it's also a natural defense mechanism against those nocturnal larger predators, because as much they're predators and they're also prey to larger predators, specifically other owls, barred owls in particular raccoons, weasels, on and on. And 
they're really unique in that once they're full from their meal, they'll actually just go and cache it. So then they can come back to it later when they're feeling hungry. And they nest in abandoned woodpecker cavities. So any of those, those are usually snag trees. So standing dead trees with woodpecker cavities. We've all seen them. That is a potential nesting spot for the northern pygmy owl. They do have to compete for those cavities, though, for, with swirl, squirrels. And they want to make sure it's it's high enough for, um, so that raccoons can't necessarily go and predate upon their eggs. So it's not always just snag trees, though. Woodpeckers also nest, of course, in living trees. And... They have their nest relatively, like about maybe, I don't know the exact height, but part of the way up the tree. And they aren't, they don't fly up to the tree. They actually land on lower branches and then climb their way up to the top. They climb up to the top because they use a um, perch and pounce method to, to catch their prey. So they can be seen... Little, little guys at the top of tip tops of trees, just watching and trying to scope out their area and then just dive bombing and going for other small birds or other, any other rodents or anything. So having those old big trees that have lower, large lower branches for them to land upon is essential for them so that they can eat and also so they can climb up into their nesting cavities they usually live on the forest's edge for more diverse foraging and it's usually on steep hillsides especially um, because of the expansive view they can get a real scope of who's around what's in the territory there's water nearby it's really just kind of right on the edge it's almost like this stage for them to be able to have a bird's eye view oh i love these little little owls so the average range per breeding pair is 75 hectares which is amazing and they usually keep about a meter or a kilometer and a half from other breeding pairs so each breeding pair 75 hectares and they keep a meter and a half sorry a kilometer and a half space from other pairs. Parents are seasonally monogamous, but they work together as parents and they will care for their young until a few weeks after they first fledge. They lay two to seven eggs per season and their mating season is anywhere between March and June, so about now. And during the courtship, the male actually feeds the female as a, as, a, as a ritual, you know. I love that. So why is the northern pygmy owl at risk? Deforestation and logging practices, especially removing snag trees, that literally just takes away their home. Changes in climate, they're definitely sensitive to, as most species are. And predation from barred owls, I, I found, or my partner and I found 
a an injured northern pygmy owl that we believe was attacked by a barred owl and it injured its wings pretty badly and i would like to speak more closer to the end about mountain aviary rescue society and our relationship there but so they're at risk from predation from barred owls raccoons and squirrels eating their eggs and stealing their homes so the best way that we can support the northern pygmy owl is to leave up those snag trees in your back 40 and report any nests or observations into us at foci we love hearing again about any species at risk that you see and i would particularly love to hear about any northern pygmy owls so I mean, I could just keep going. I have There's so many more species, but I guess we'll stop there. And I'm so open to talking about species at risk anytime. So if you see me and you have a question, I'm so, I'd be so keen to talk with you about it. And if, you know, I'm still learning too. So I'm, I might learn something from you and vice versa. And yeah, so in conclusion, I've just shared a lot of facts with you some of which may have stuck and some may have not, and that's totally okay. I just wanted to introduce you to these creatures. All of these details are facets of the larger web of life, which we're all a part of, and all of those details are really important. The key thing that I'd hope for you to take from this talk is the power and observation. Just being with animals and plants, we can learn things that we can't put words to necessarily. So I really encourage you just to be with these animals when they come to you or when you see them in their natural habitats. Take a picture to identify them later. Or better yet, you can visit Cortez Wild to study their physiology and identification. Listen to their calls online. Learn their language and just share space with them. We have animals and plants of all sorts and all sizes that we share this island with. And it's our responsibility to educate ourselves and coexist in a good way. Lastly, if it wasn't clear, I'd just like to remind you the impact of recording your observations and reporting into us at FOCI, Friends of Cortez Island Society. Really, though, any and all of this data on all of these species really informs decision making around protecting these species and their ecological communities. We're all for one and one for all. And in case you needed a reminder, nature is good for you. Thank you for your interest in protecting wildlife. All my relations. Thank you so much. I just want to also thank you, especially Autumn, because one of the things that I find so personally inspiring about you is that you don't necessarily have an official title. There's not, um, you know, a uh, you, you like I say, you're with Foci, but that's because you've become so heavily invested as a volunteer that you've decided to learn these species. You've inspired me to learn and think about them more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love this idea of that we are each citizen scientists or folk scientists um, because we are learning how to live in harmony together we have to learn that Mm -hmm. as neighbors helping each other so i am so appreciative please please check out the friends of cortez island website at friendsofcortez.org and i want to hear from you because maybe we want to bring autumn back again and again she's pretty (laughs) awesome isn't she folks (laughs) um so we are going to listen to a little bit of music and then 
we are going to have Sam come on and let us know what he is doing in the garden this week. Sam is one of my major, major garden inspirations. We are super lucky to have him. So we're going to listen to a song called Bird Calls by Charles Mingus. Thank you so much for tuning in.
Hello, neighbor. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Community Radio. Today is Friday's Folk University's Folk You Talk Show. And we have had a fantastic month. Today, we heard from Folk Eye on Species at Risk. And now we get to have in the studio another one of my favorite people um, that I get a lot of inspiration with. We have Sam Mayer, who's going to tell us a little bit about what he's doing in his garden right now, in particular with water. Sam, welcome and thank you so much for leaving your garden or someone's <laughs> garden to be here. <laughs> That's kind of funny because I actually did just leave somebody's garden and I'm going back to it right after we finish uh, this little snippet. So I hope someone's paying you actually to be here because <laughs> I'm not. So that would be wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah. So right now in the garden this week, uh, we've got squash going in, cucumbers, melons, uh, we're going to get our leeks planted, which is, yeah, right in the window, um, and onions. Uh, it's a busy time, May, and I'm finding it difficult just uh, figuring out how to allocate where I put all my effort between helping other people in their gardens. I've got a few other gardening jobs and getting everything planted at home. Um, there's a few things that are really exciting me this year at home with uh, Autumn and Fred, uh, we've been working on like a lasagna style of gardening, which is a funny word to go with gardening, but it's basically like building compost piles in spot where you're going to plant things um, and then letting them break down and become the bed. And what that does for us is it keeps the weeds down. Um, it keeps the water in the soil, which is mainly what I want to talk about. And it also makes it so that you don't have to disturb the soil life. You never have to turn it up. You're always just adding material on top. It's breaking down. The soil organisms are breaking it in, working it in deeper into the soil as they move up and down. And it takes away a lot of the shoveling, which is uh, pretty nice. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I wanted to mainly just discuss water because I've been coming to realize, and I'm sure lots of us have been with changing weather patterns, how important water is for things to grow. Um, you can have all of your nutrients in your soil perfectly balanced, but if there's no water, uh, the roots can't access anything. They wouldn't grow. So this might just be like my own thought, I'm not sure, but I've been thinking a lot lately that the water is the most important nutrient in the garden. Um, and you can have poor soil, but if you've got good water then the plants will still be able to find their way to get nutrients that they need. Uh, and so the I see that will play out really well with the lasagna beds because they're covered from the sun. The, the sun doesn't bake the moisture off the soil as quickly. And so the roots always have access. I need more details on the lasagna bed and how oh. I use how I use them because I, I I pretty much do everything Sam tells me to. So um, I assume I'm using this method while I'm also planting like seedlings into it and growing them. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So when you first set one up, so basically the lasagna bed is going to have layers of what we call brown and green materials. Brown being things high in carbon. Green being really nutritious things, high in phosphorus or nitrogen, which are going to be like the fuel to break down the carbon material. 
And if you don't know what he's talking about, there's an entire focu on this with Whitney. So you can go and learn how to make soil by listening to that focu, which is on the website. Great. Thanks for that. Um, and now I forgot what the question was, but how you make lasagna beds and plant in them. Oh, and plant in them. Right. So, so depending on what I'm planting, I adjust. So if I'm planting a seed that's really delicate, then I will work in a layer of really well composted material in my layers of greens and browns so that they have something easy for them to germinate in. Whereas if I'm putting a really hardy thing in like a squash or a cabbage transplant or a tomato or a pepper, like something that can just handle that's kind of comes down to intuition. Like I just feel like those things can handle a little bit of a tougher go and they can work their way through the straw and it seems like they've got no problem with it. They spread their roots further. Then I can set up a bed that is just raw poo, sorry, raw manure and, (laughs) and straw or leaves or whatever carbon material I have. And I can just put the, squash plants right into them if they're really little i'll put a little pocket in my mound of what more well broken down compost or soil and i'll plant the start in there so it just has a chance to get acquainted with its new soil and then it will work its way all the way through the manure yeah on top of that, do you need to do some sort of additional ground cover mulch type thing? Well, my final layer will usually be a carbon layer. So that's like either leaves or sometimes it's seaweed, which isn't technically very carbonaceous, but it's a nice top mulch. Um, and when I want to sow a seed in, I'll just pull that top layer of mulch back to the first layer of like what's almost soil and I'll sow into that. Um, (laughs) we're both looking at each other like so who's gonna talk next um so i want to talk a little bit more about um water um because i know this is one of your great passions and also because (laughs) water is an ongoing issue in my garden so I, that's what I know. And I think from talking to people that even if you do not live on the side of a rocky cliff like I do, that it's probably an issue in your garden. And one of the things that I continue struggling with is because I actually have a fair amount of water that runs down I kind of like across the sort of rocky cliff face, I just often need to slow it down, distribute it, um, and 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 keep it from evaporating so that I don't have to do as much watering because when I do water, I lose a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, can you give me more advice? <laughs> oh, is this why you brought I, me in? Just for yeah, yeah. A little private consult. This, this is Manda's free gardening <laughs> advice. Uh, <laughs> well, you've got a very unique situation where you are, as most people will. They've got to observe the conditions that are around them. Um, in your case, I might dig trenches in my bed and put in woody debris lower down, kind of making like a hugel bed so that there's a trench that the water will fill into where there's woody debris and that can absorb some of the water. And then on top, I build the beds on top of that woody debris and they don't, the beds then are not sitting in the moisture. So roots won't rot, but they have access to the moisture and it will act like a wick. I'm, I want to don't no don't chime in yet because uh, I wanted to talk about something else because last year in a couple of my lasagna beds I didn't water all season 
uh, I grew one of the most butternuts, most beautiful butternuts I've ever grown, and it it didn't get any water all season. I grew two marijuana plants, and they didn't get watered all season, and I never weeded the beds. So for me, it's like really reclaiming this like beautiful experience with gardening that doesn't have to be so hard work oriented by listening to the way that nature builds soil and trying to do that myself I'm seeing a lot more ease in my gardening I got a little bit spoiled with Autumn because she really, she's like, now you play this and I just do what she says. <laughs> Sam gives me these like meaningful looks that I'm like, oh no, what am I supposed to be doing? Um, okay, so um, I love I love that idea um, <laughs> that we can water less. And I've noticed this theme that's coming out with a lot of the people now who have, who have come and done these small gardening spots where there is a lot of you on Cortez who are just like, we can you can make it less work and more fun. Um, which I really like to hear <laughs> about making it less work and more fun. Um, and you've mentioned a couple things today that really tie in things that we've already heard. Like we had someone come in and talk the whole time about leeks and getting their leeks started. So I went home and I started my leeks and now I know that I can transplant them because you just told me to. <laughs> um, Hold up there. It's also dependent on the size of your leeks. Like if they're too small, they'll struggle when you put them in. Oh. So. What's I don't right know when size? you planted them. What's the right size? Yeah. Uh, How's it supposed to be made on radio 15 as, minutes? If... As thick as a piece of straw, like about that, the, the bottom of the greens. Some people's instincts are just less developed. Okay, I'm on the less developed side. Sam's on the more developed side. Um, one of the things that Whitney talked about that um, this also really touches on is when you have water that does ultimately leave your land, and I was thinking about this a lot when Autumn was talking today, to do things to clean the nutrients out of that water so mm. that you're not changing whatever um, ecosystem that the water then is flowing into. So she does that using uh, charcoal. Right. Um, um, or biochar. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have other thoughts? Because this is also something I know on the land that you're working on right now, that you guys have a lot of water that flows through and then ultimately probably off that land. Um, and how? so how do you work with that? Yeah, and we have, we have the lake uh, to consider where we are because we're right on Gunflint Lake. So we've got sheep, we've got chickens, ducks, and we did kind of watch, like especially the duck pond, just like flow straight into the lake and it's a pretty dirty pond so we're trying to figure out well not straight in the lake into the ditch and then through the road but in our minds it's ultimately all that nutrients just getting deposited down there and so we're trying to figure out ways to uh, redirect the flow of water uh, either through garden beds or through hugel culture beds that would be big and swaled which is like just a big ridge um, and that way the water has to leach through and those nutrients get absorbed by all the woody material that's breaking down in there. Um, and we have a project with our neighborhood right now where we're putting in a uh, wetland and Miranda uh, is helping us do that. And she's uh, been studying under this master wetland builder. Um, and so we're trying to construct a wetland because that's where a lot of the main flow of our water goes so that it slows the flow down and there's certain species of plants that will be planted intentionally to filter things out on their way down to the lake. I love that idea. One of the things that I was thinking about was just that, is that part of maybe 
the reason that some of the species are at risk on Cortez is because of the roads and the ditches, which then have changed the water um, flow uh, on the island. So now we get a lot of things that flow straight off the road through the ditches and into the lakes that uh, might have before been filtered through wetlands or gone into the ocean. Um, so that that's exactly one of the things maybe mm-hmm. we can get Miranda on. Uh, <laughs> community you can help me by <laughs> helping twist the arm of some of the people we want to hear more from do you have any other last thoughts about what we might be doing in the garden this week um from your inspiration uh no i think uh, i think that's good uh, well thank you so so much sam for being here you are always one of my inspirations we're going to listen to a little music and then we have um some closing words from our wonderful autumn um who's here from friends of cortez island with us this week here we go there are Stranded again, so off I'd ran. A young world crashing around me. No possibilities of getting what I need. He looked at me and smiled. Said, No, 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 child. See the dog and butterfly.
Forgive me, friends and neighbors. Uh, it hasn't been the perfect integration of music this time. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. We've been really lucky to have Autumn from Friends of Cortez Island uh, here as part of our Nature is Good for You month on CKTZ. We have been learning about Cortez, the Friends of Cortez Island Species at Risk program. Autumn's got a few closing words that are super important, and I want everyone to to hear. So I am turning it over to you, Autumn. Great. Thank you so much. Um, there's Yeah, there's a few other things I'd like to mention, and one of them is the Species at Risk buttons. A few years ago, some young folks... Um, or when they were younger, who grew up here, learned about Bill M211, which was or is the proposed legislation for species at risk in BC. So as a way to promote and educate people, they made this amazing artwork and sold it on buttons, and they're putting the funds towards a good cause. You can find those at the co-op. If you aren't already sporting one, you can check them out. I think more will be added over time because I, you know, people have just been buying them up over the years and um, we're going to be restocking that soon if it hasn't been done already. I'd also like to mention that we do share this island with bears, wolves, and cougars. And Sabina has put primers all around the island to teach us how to care for these wildlife and how to share the island with these animals in a good way because this is their home too after all. So just be wise and alert out there. Read up on the posters around the island, how you can coexist with them, not only by being out in the forest, but just right at home, how we can take precautionary measures to ensure that they stay safe and wild. And the last thing, I mean, I could keep going, like I said, but the last thing I'd like to mention is about sick and injured wildlife. If you ever come across or a sick or injured animal, we do have support here. Uh, Mountain Aviary Rescue Society, also known as MARS, is located in Merville, and they have a rehabilitation hospital there that really cares for many animals, many, many animals all of the time. I personally have been there, and they're doing really amazing work. And over the past few months, I've been building a relationship with Jill, the manager there, who is absolutely lovely and down-to-earth. And... I'm, I've been kind of tiptoeing and especially when things kind of open up more again, I'm going to be undergoing training and volunteering to help folks here liaise with, um, with Mars and to handle the wildlife and capture it in a good way. So if you do, um, and then we can get them to the rehab center as soon as possible. 